0: Welcome to Breaking Brave, I'm Marilyn Barefoot. I'm thrilled to introduce you to my guest today, the internationally acclaimed fashion designer, Linda Lundstrom. From learning to sew in Red Lake, Ontario on her mother's featherweight Singer sewing machine, Linda built her business into a multi-million dollar apparel company. She's best known for La Parka, a coat that paid tribute to her Canadian heritage. But like all great entrepreneurial journeys, there were more than a couple of bumps in the road. Please welcome the epitome of brave, Linda Lundstrom. I am completely and totally thrilled and excited to have a Canadian <laughs> icon chatting with me today, the brilliant, the talented, the creative, Linda Lundstrom. <laughs> you and I first met at an International Women's Day event, which was at the Holtz Cafe in 2013, and I was the MC for the event. And of everyone on the panel, you had chills running through me with the stories that you told that particular <laughs> day. And those stories have stuck with me and continue to stick with me. So let's start with, you were born in Red Lake, Ontario, which at its you know, originally, originally First Nations people inhabited over 2000 years ago, mostly the the Sioux and the Cree. But let's talk about your your life a little bit in the Red Lake area when I know that's probably not exactly where you were. I mean, you were born in Red Lake, but there was a tiny town that I can't remember the name of. So I'm going to let you talk and I'm going to shut up here for a minute. Well,
1: my mother saw a job advertised in the Winnipeg Free Press, and she was working in a in a, as a cook in a restaurant in, in Winnipeg. And she was making, you know, 30 pies and 80 loaves of bread a day or something ridiculous like that. And she saw a, an ad in the Winnipeg Free Press for a cook in uh, Red Lake, and it was triple the salary that she was making in Winnipeg. So being an adventurous and pioneering woman, she uh, applied, got the job. And uh, next thing you know, she's on a plane, Sitting on a wooden bench in a plane, can you imagine she's twenty i guess she's probably like twenty three years of age wow. and uh, she's going up to uh, a mining encampment basically uh to cook for the men and there were six hundred men there was a gold rush going on up there. they discovered gold in the area and and uh there were six hundred men and I think five women, my mom and four others, and the other women were providing services that had nothing to do with food. And my mom was the my mom was the cook, and um, and she just started, you know, making these huge batches of everything. And uh, my dad, who had no, knew my mom from Manitoba and had met her through uh, relatives, my dad uh, followed her up there, and uh, that's where they you know, continued their courtship and got married and ended up staying up there. And that's where I was born. So the area is consists of a number of little gold mines. And everywhere there was a gold mine, a little town would spring up. Fabulous. We moved from mine site to mine site several times. Um, when I was born, we lived in a place called Sterritt Olson, which was a town of about 30 people. In the middle of the bush, where there was a gold mine. Wow! And my dad worked in that mine, and he built the house that we lived in. Then we then my dad got a job in a mine on Mackenzie Island, so we moved to Mackenzie Island, and then we moved to bombertown And then so there were all these little mining towns in the Red Lake district area, and we lived in several of them. But we ended up uh, we ended up in Koshner, Ontario, which I think is the name of the town that you were trying to remember. So Koshner yes. was another gold mine, and uh, my dad, by this point, had had progressed from being an underground miner. So he was a laborer. He, you know, he looked like a bodybuilder because he he was so muscular from working in the mines. I can't at even that imagine, point, the, yeah, the physical labor of that. It, it yeah, yes, absolutely, working underground every day. I've got a lot of respect for my dad and his work ethic, and uh, but by the time we moved to tr- to Koshner, He had been given an opportunity to bid on contracts to sink shafts underground, and um, so he became an entrepreneur. Fantastic. And uh, we lived in Koshner until I was 17 years old, and uh, at that point we moved to Winnipeg because my dad was getting contracts in northern Manitoba at that point. And the only way to get to northern Manitoba from Red Lake was to go down to the Trans-Canada Highway, which is like a five-hour drive, over to Winnipeg, and then up to Thompson, you know, Snow Lake, Flin Flon, the Paw, all those areas up in there that had mining. So they thought that the best thing to do would be to be in Winnipeg. It was more central to, between Red Lake and northern Manitoba. So that's when we left Red Lake. Now, Red Lake, the area, um, was inhabited by more than 2,000 years of heritage of First Nations people. I mean, they we don't know how long they were inhabiting the area, but a long, thousands of years. Uh, Anishinaabeg people, um, Cree, Ojibwe, and they were sort of invaded by all of the white people that mm. came to work in the mines. Mm-hmm. And indigenous people all also worked in the mines, but I have to say that... Um, There was a lot of racism, even though we were in the minority. Yes. um, uh, There was racism and injustices perpetrated against the indigenous people of the area that really, really left a very powerful impression upon me and resulted in um, some guilt and shame on my part. Um, When I left at the age of 17, I I carried that guilt and shame with me because— I realize when I look back on it that I actually participated in some of the racism, sometimes by my silence, sometimes by my apathy, um, but but always with the awareness that what I was witnessing was wrong. Yes. But I didn't have the courage. I didn't have the courage to do anything about it. And um, and so that laid the groundwork for what became my my calling later on in life.
0: And it's amazing to me how those first few years in people's lives end up being somehow, sometimes it takes a lifetime to find your way back to that, but there's something there that is your calling. Yeah. So I'd like to hear about 1954 when you started to play with your mother's featherweight singer <laughs> sewing machine. That's where I'd like to, I'd like to go. I'd like to jump now to that because I, too, as a kid, now not as young as you, oh, my gosh, you were like three or four. Yes, Um, yes. I was taught by my mom to sew on a Singer featherweight sewing machine. So all of a sudden, as I was learning more and more about you, researching for this discussion (gasps) today, I started to say, oh, my goodness, we've got a lot going on. But talk to me about your experience with the Singer sewing machine.
1: Well, because we moved from town to town, I remember – that I was three years old because of the house that we lived in when I learned to sew when I started sewing. uh, It was the log house that my dad built in Starratt Olson. And um, my mother, God bless her. I mean, imagine ordering a Singer featherweight sewing machine from Eaton's catalog and letting your three-year-old play with it. I, I mean, it. I just can't. I just can't believe that she actually let that happen. Because if anything happened to that machine, you know, but it was a little black, little black featherweight, right? And yep. it went into this little black box. Do yep. you remember that the gold right? Do you still have yours? I
0: think my mom might somewhere because I, <gasps> I, I pleaded with her to never get rid of it. And of course, at oh, the time, you've got to hang on
1: to it. At yeah. the time,
0: it was like, what is this junk? We don't want this junk. Um, but it, it it it's so so valuable
1: well you know um on the 25th anniversary of my my company my mom presented me with the featherweight singer sewing machine that <laughs> that she uh that i learned to sew on and it still works it still works great and so i've got it here and it's it's a prized possession but anyhow this little singer featherweight sewing machine so it was state of the art because it was electric um as opposed to um, being like a treadle that you have to pedal with your feet. Yeah. And so my my mom, what she did was she took the needle out of it. Oh. And she and I would sit there and push the pedal and the fabric would go through underneath the foot and that's how I learned to um, steer oh, wow, the fabric that's under the under the pressure foot. And by the time I was before I was even in grade one. Uh, I was making my own clothes, <laughs> and I never made doll clothes. I I don't remember ever playing with dolls. I went straight to full size clothing. And when you live up in the bush, um, you know your lifeline to the outside world is maybe an annual trip into Winnipeg, and Eaton's catalog, and so and and also the flour sacks that the the fabric that the flour and the sugar and the, came in. My mom would wash them and she would make things for us. I have two sisters, so make things for us out of those flower sacks. And my mom would buy fabric from Eat's catalog. And so to be trusted with, you know, experimenting (laughs) with her sewing machine. So I was making, I didn't make like little little girl dresses. I made pencil skirts and off the shoulder tops. (laughs) I heard. And I wore them with those little plastic high heels, you know, with the sparkles in the plastic, with the elastic over your toe. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Do you remember those? I remember those. Coveted them. <laughs> and I i understand that you made yourself an orange corduroy pencil skirt with a slit up the back yeah. to attend
1: day one of grade one. That's right. <laughs> oh my God, you really have done your your homework. I can't believe that you found that story. Yeah, yeah, I remember it like it was a pumpkin. It was like a pumpkin color orange baby whale corduroy. There you go. For to grade one.
0: <laughs> Am I right when I say that? I mean, obviously it's a calling, but the idea that you didn't want to wear the same clothes as everybody else because I too was dressed out of anything that came out of the Eaton's catalog because yeah. it would, that's how you had to—that's how we rolled, and and right. so by that was a great inspiration for you to say, okay, I'm going to do my own thing because I want to look different than the rest of the peeps at school,
1: right? Yeah, and it wasn't only that; it's that nothing fit me because I was really tall. Oh, so I I, I sprouted up like I grew really tall really fast, and I stopped growing early. So by the time I was in grade seven, I was five foot ten already. <sighs> and but i was only a, i was still a kid but like kids clothes didn't fit me nothing was long enough so um and i was very self-conscious about my height cuz you know in the school pictures like i was towering over above everybody um now i'm starting to shrink so i'm <laughs> i wish i was 5'10 again <laughs> but uh, but that was uh, that was a practical thing also because things just didn't fit me so by making them myself i made sure that the sleeves were long enough and the pants were long enough etc and i really liked having something that nobody else had i bet so the fabric might have come from Ian's catalog but then i but made the designs
0: were you yeah. using patterns i mean the the
1: the simplicity and butterick mccall's butterick yeah but this is the other thing marilyn when i was about 9 years old my mother, who loved sewing herself and loved fashion, uh, by this time we were living in Kochener and it was a town of about 250 people. And um, my mom opened a fabric store in our basement. And what she would do is she would <laughs> order fabric for me in catalog. She'd invite all the ladies over and serve coffee and cake. And then she would sell it for the same price that she paid for it. And And after she'd paid for the postage and everything like that, my dad said, Olive, you're losing money. (laughs) Plus, you're feeding all these women. So my mom um, figured out that she had to go to Winnipeg, find a wholesaler or somebody that would give her a better deal so that she could pay her expenses. And we had this fabric store in our basement. So you can imagine, by this time, I'm sewing like crazy. And she has fabric downstairs and patterns From all the, you know, Simplicity Butter McCalls and Thread and Zippers. And I mean, I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, every day I would run home from school and I'd go straight down into the basement. And that's where uh, the Indigenous women from the area heard about my mom's store and they used to come and, um, and they would bring the beautiful moose hide and deer hide moccasins and mukluks all beautifully hand beaded. And trade them oh. for fabric and they didn't speak a word of english
0: right.
1: we didn't speak their language right but i remember my mom and i spending hours with with the women in the in the basement um <laughs> uh, just laughing and having we were able to communicate fine and my mom started showing them how they could buy better fabric to line the i mean they were beautiful mukluks and they were hand Home tan, so they had that smoky oh, smell. Oh my goodness! Um, and she started supplying them with better fabric to line these beautiful moccasins and mucklucks. And I can remember times when there would might have been twenty or thirty pairs of mucklucks hanging in the fabric store, waiting for people to pick them up that had drawn out their foot on a piece of paper and got custom-made mucklucks made. Mukluks made. Um, for them. And uh, it was like a little trading post going on there. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful thing to have at my disposal growing up. And so that's where I started getting really creative with the kind of closing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I didn't know any of that going into this conversation with you, Linda, but your mom sounds like a very, very strong, brave, loving woman. Mm hmm.
1: She was very loving. She, she was very loving. She was very accepting of people. She was very, I mean, she, we got along with the Indigenous women that came there. Um, it was fun. We laughed. My mom was just, she wasn't, she never judged anybody. I, I, she was amazing. I owe everything to her. Everything. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We don't realize, as when we're such little kids, how that imprints that approach to life, that spirit, that genuineness, so you talk about feeling guilty and 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 ashamed of of racism, but yet here is your mother, and you as a small child, welcoming, laughing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. exchanging so lovely, yeah, I'm gonna come back to that, Linda, but I'm gonna jump now, so um first of all, I have to cover this off in grade four, you won an award for a little pantsuit that you designed. And I remember you <laughs> saying dolman sleeves. And I'm like, I bet in grade four, you actually knew what dolman sleeves were.
1: <laughs> I won a sewing contest. It was actually, I was in grade four, but uh, it was a sewing contest that was held in Red Lakes. So we were living in Koshner at the time and uh, in it was held at the Red Lake Polish Hall. And I don't know whether it was sponsored by, I don't know who sponsored, I don't know where it came from, but I entered it. With this pantsuit, and um, and I won, and I was up against you know adults, who were <laughs> so fabulous. It was it was really cool. Yeah, and did you get a that prize? That was my first big achievement. Yeah, I can't remember what what the prize. I don't remember what the prize was. Um, but you know, you had to model your outfit and everything. It was a big deal.
0: I love the story.
1: So. Yeah. <laughs> I further understand
0: that you and I have the, the whole high school, perhaps, experience together in terms of marks and maybe not caring too much about school. Would you graduate at high school with a 53%?
1: Average. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you were Which really good that. at some
0: things and not so good at other things, so it all came out <laughs> exactly. as 53. It
1: came, came to 53, yeah. I wasn't 53 in everything. I was I was 80 in some things. And so you can imagine what my marks were in the other thing if I came and ended up at 53. <laughs> but But I always dre- I always looked good for the exam. I bet you did. I made myself a new outfit. Absolutely. Usually for the exams because
0: <laughs> I'd love that. I, I was listening to your TED talk that you did at TEDx Thunder Bay and you were saying, you know, I was working really hard at you uni- at sorry, not at university, at high school, and and I'd be up till two, three in the morning. Making an outfit, not nothing to do with <laughs> studying for the exam, man, because there was that long walk down at the gymnasium, which was kind of sort of feeling like a runway to me. And yeah, good for yeah. you. So from there, you jumped into Sheridan College, which I, I imagine. And I,
1: I, just have to, I just have to interject here, um, Marilyn. At no time did my mother or my father say anything about my low marks, put any pressure on me at all. About my marks. Now that's really unusual. Yes, But it the is. reason why is because my dad had not even grade one education. Wow. My mother had grade eight education, but they did not put an emphasis on education. They put an emphasis on a work ethic, uh, getting stuff done, your ability to uh, fish and hunt, and you know, clean the fish, pluck the ducks, um, you do all those kinds of things were more important to them than than the um than the school marks and i feel i just
0: feel a weight come off my shoulders when you talk that way that you know there wasn't pressure there wasn't you have to be best you have to be top of the class you have to have
1: to a work ethic there was there was none of that I love that.
0: And and I do understand, because as a very young child, not obviously in Manitoba, because I was raised in Ontario, but you and I have a love of pickerel in common. So my dad, when, when we... I'm not sure if he wanted a boy. He just knew how to do boy things. And I was the firstborn of two kids. So I had a sister as well, but... We would go fishing on Eels Lake, which is here in Ontario. But back then, when the dinosaurs were on the earth, there was an awful lot of fish. He would wake me up at 4.30 in the morning, and we would go out and fish for pickerel. Now, I don't think it's probably as fantastic as the pickerel you guys would have had in Manitoba. But at age five, I could fillet a pickerel. Oh, my gosh. Well, Red Lake was in Ontario. I'm so sorry, because then you were talking about moving to, to Winnipeg. and Winnipeg, and yeah. So, so that was where, was where I in got Northwestern confused. Northwestern
1: Ontario is I apologize. close to the Manitoba border. Right. No problem. Um, the pickerel was delicious, mm-hmm. and so was the white fish. And um, we just fished all the time. Like, May 24th was the opening. Sometime in May, maybe it's May 24th, long weekend, was the opening of fishing season. So all of May and June, we were out in the boat. I'm talking... Every single night, because we were allowed to catch six pickerel per person on the boat. Okay. That was our limit. So my dad would say, bring all your friends. I could bring friends on the boat with me because each person there. And we, (laughs) we would go out on the boat right after my dad got home from work and I got home from school and with a couple of friends and we had a little Coleman stove and a cast iron frying pan and we would be catching fish, filleting them right on the boat, throwing it into the frying pan and eating them so that we could catch more because they didn't, you know, they didn't count the ones that were in your stomach. (laughs) (laughs) And so I remember spending hours and hours and of course up, up there, At that time of year, it didn't get dark till like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. So we could be up the lake for a long time. And um, then we would come home and we'd have like, okay, so there's five people on the boat, five times six is 30. There's 30 pickerel, pickerel that have to be filleted that night. So we'd sometimes be up till like one or two in the morning filleting these fish. And then I had school the next day. And that was also when exams were happening. Of course. So that's another, re- that's another reason <laughs> that I didn't do that well on exams, because we were, we were catching pickerel. But you see, my mom and dad placed a great deal of importance upon that. You know, we had to fill up the deep freeze, so it would last us through the winter. And so there was pickerel, and there was moose, and deer, and wild mushrooms, and lots of blueberries in that freezer.
0: Oh, one day, Linda, when we can all be safe together again, because we're in the middle of the global pandemic still as we're recording this, you and I have got to get together and have pickerel. Why
1: don't we have a, a feast of pickerel? I would love that. Anyway, I have fond memories of all the f- time I spent fishing, and um, and and delicious pickerel was a staple of our diet. Mm-hmm. And Oakville,
0: Ontario, going to Sheridan College Fashion Design School. How did that
1: go? What what was that experience like? Oh, you know, I found my tribe there. Uh, I was I was uh, kind of up in Red Lake. I was it was a bit of an oddball because I was sewing all the time and I was wearing, you know, I was, I looked like Twiggy at one point. I was really fascinated by Twiggy and I, I was, I was just, I had the latest haircut and I was out there and, and I didn't know anybody else. There was nobody else that was like me interested in the same things as me in, in, in Red Lake. Although I used to, um, make, um, outfits for me and my girlfriends. Um, if there was a dance, the Polish hall or something like that, I'd make us, a, you know, pair of bell bottoms. But when I got to Sheridan, I finished, we went to Winnipeg and I, I graduated from high school in Winnipeg. Uh, and then I went to Sheridan college and I wasn't university material. There's no way I could have gotten into a university, but when we found out about Sheridan college, um, We sent them photographs of all the things that I'd made over the years, and um, I was accepted. And when I went to Sheridan College, I met all these other oddballs that were like me, and we were all together. And so that's where I met Wayne Clark and uh, Wendy Ball, who became a brilliant theater costume designer, and Joyce Szymanski. And, I mean, it was fabulous. All of a sudden, I was with my tribe, you know, and I was really good at sewing, and other people were really good at illustrating, but they didn't know how to sew yet. And so we we all came with different strengths and weaknesses and we helped each other.
0: That's yeah. fantastic. I didn't realize you met Wayne Clark when you were at Sheridan College. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Once yeah. upon a time I had a Wayne Clark dress that it was, you know, kept for very, very, very special occasions.
1: Yeah, he was he well, he still is designing and he's an absolute brilliant designer and was a very, very dear friend. So you spent some time in France at
0: age 23. Was that from Sheridan? You you got a chance to go over there and do
1: some work in France? When I graduated from Sheridan College, I got a job uh, with Jean Pierce, who was a, a couturier and a retailer on Eglinton Avenue. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I worked for a company on Spadina Avenue called Myers Dress. And that's where I really, really discovered what I I loved and that was I, I was helping make patterns uh, for the for the owner and designer and I remember one time I went back into the back where they were sewing and producing cutting and producing and I saw about 30 of the the dress that I had made the pattern for hanging there oh. and in different sizes and different colors but it was it was the pattern that I made and a, a thrill went through me and just a chill went through me and I went oh. I love the idea of making lots of something.
0: It's, I can feel that moment. I mean, I can't yeah. because I
1: haven't experienced it, but. Well, and every, yeah, and everybody has that experience yeah. when they, when you, I believe, when you discover something that really resonates with you on a deep level, you have that, it's yeah. like a chill that goes through you. And I just went, oh, and I knew then that I really wanted to be a manufacturer, not a, Couturier, or, you know, making one of a kind kind of things. I really wanted to make something and then duplicate it, figure out ways how to engineer it to to make it uh, producible. And so I embarked upon learning as much as I could about that. And in the process of doing that, I applied for a Canadian government scholarship to apprentice in Europe, because at the time, There weren't a lot of companies that a person like a young person like me could go to learn the design process. Um, Most of the Canadian companies had tie ups in New York, which meant that they shared the designs that were created by the design studio in New York Uh, and they would bring the patterns back to Canada and produce it here. I see. But there wasn't a lot of designing going on now except for Marilyn Brooks. Marilyn Brooks was the real, oh she was just such a trailblazer. Um, and so she was my idol and um, and so what I I wanted to learn how to design and create patterns to a greater extent than I'd learned at Sheridan College and, and to manufacture and start a company and I my dad had his own company, my dad my mom had her fabric store, so I thought okay, I'm going to start my own company one day, but I need to learn first. So I went to London uh, and worked for a company called Frank Usher, and they were a manufacturer. And then I spent the last three months of my year in Europe with a company in the south of France called Shekhock. And and that's where I learned um, more about, you know, design. And you see, when I went to Sheridan College, I was really strong in pattern making and sewing. But I have to say that design was not my strength. I, I just, I don't know. I, I couldn't do what Wayne Clark did, which was illustrate a beautiful designer. I was really kind of stilted in my creativity. Mm-hmm. And so the only way to to get better at that side of it was to, to do it. Just keep coming, just keep trying to come up with ideas and, and make them. And um, they didn't flow from me as readily as they did with some of the other people I went to school with. So... Being in the south of France and working for Chekhov gave me an opportunity to to design more. So I came back to Canada uh, after my year in Europe and decided I wanted to get another get a job and learn even more practical knowledge, and I could not get a job. There was nobody on Spadine Avenue that wanted what I had to offer. It was a timing thing. I don't know. So that's when I called my mom and dad and I said, look, they had always said, when you're ready to start your company, let us know and we'll we'll give we'll loan you the money to get started and so I called them and I said I'm I'm going to do it now I'm not going to do it I was planning thinking maybe when I was 27 but I decided to accelerate those plans and so at the age of 23 I started Linda Lundstrom I love your parents
0: <laughs> Yeah I love your parents Amazing right <laughs> They had such faith in you they had such faith in you such love for you so supportive that's Amazing, and And, yeah, and they never
1: ever questioned. They never ever questioned how I spent that money. Uh, They they loaned me ten thousand dollars to start the company.
0: Twenty three years of age. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's brave. I mean, yes, it's totally brave, but also you've had these beautiful parents that have modeled this entrepreneurial spirit for you. Your mom Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. doing
0: her own thing and having your own fabric store in the basement of your house and your dad running his own business. It's incredible how that just
1: puts itself into your soul as it's what you do. Yeah. It just seemed perfectly natural to me to, to have my own company. And so, yeah. So from a two bedroom apartment on St. Clair and Oakwood in Toronto, um, that's where I started and I slept in the living room and I had cutting table in the dining room and I had sewing machines and rolling racks in, uh, in the bedrooms. And yeah, that's where it all began. And in two years I had outgrown that, that apartment. And, uh, that's when I moved down to a studio third, three, w- four walk up, uh, just off Spadina Avenue and then took some space across the hall. And then those two spaces became too small. So I moved to a, 10,000 square foot space. Wow. And and after 5 years that was too small, so I took an additional 8,000, you know, and it was just, you know, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other and lots and lots of lots and lots of great stories along the way of you know, I think if I'd known what I was getting into, <laughs> I I never would have started. But because I was kind of naive, I didn't really know I didn't really know that uh, things weren't going to work out all the time.
0: No, but you knew your passion and you knew you were drawn to this and you knew that this made you happy.
1: And so, of course. And I wasn't wasn't good at anything else because I I was good at filleting pickerel, (laughs) but I wasn't good at anything else but, you know, making clothes. And so I, I had to make it work. I didn't have a plan B. But you
0: spiritually must have been very fulfilled because you were you were following your passion, so it didn't feel like work. It 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 felt amazing.
1: Yeah, didn't feel like work.
0: So tell me about Izzy Miyake and 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 your whole trip to Japan and and being inspired by the fact that he was inspired by the kimono.
1: Well, you see, the thing is that when you come from from a place like Koshener, you know, you think that Everything great and wonderful is happening in other places, mm-hmm. and that and and when you come from a place like that, you feel very confined um, by that and so, when I went down to sheridan college and and started meeting other people, I started feeling like kind of inferior, like I had an inferiority complex because I thought that I had to be part of the fashion world and and what did that mean? Uh, that's when the whole notion of being a designer was presented to me because up until then I thought I would be a dressmaker mm-hmm. that manufacture. I, you know, the whole notion of a designer was was kind of a foreign concept to me before I went to Europe. So when I came back and uh, and people started calling me a designer, and I had to become more prolific in creating original designs, I reverted to trying to figure out what everybody else was doing. So I was subscribing to Women's Wear Daily, which is an industry paper. I was I was going to New York and I was trying to f- be on the whole fashion network treadmill of what's going on in the world of fashion to try and be part of that. Of course, yes. And it was exhausting. First of all, I, I couldn't keep up with the Women's Wear Dailies. And... Um, and I was just trying to make what everybody else was trying to make, you uh-huh. know. Um, and luck would have it that oh, and at the same time, I'm having tremendous cash flow problems in my in my company. Tremendous cash flow because I my business was growing. It was growing, but not fast enough for me to have a better cash flow.
0: And the banks and are never so, your
1: friend at that stage, right? Oh, no, never ever ever. No, I had I have some real great stories about my experience with experiences with banks um <laughs> which I, I'll share for another episode. But anyway, um yeah, so a friend who was went to Sheridan and who was in the textile business was working for a company that was making uh, getting a lot of their textiles from Japan. And she said to me, Linda, why don't you come with me? I'm going over. I'm going to be all by myself. I'd really love some company. Why don't you come to Japan with me? And I went, well, I, I can't go to Japan. Like I like I, <laughs> I can't afford it and everything. And then I had an employee that worked with me. And she said, Linda, you've got to go. Excellent. Your hotel is going to be paid for it. Let's make it happen. So I went to Japan and I thought I was going to be Pushed and shoved in this crowded country, and I was so amazed at the aesthetic, hmm. the sense of spaciousness, the the fashion, just everything about that country was like being on another planet almost. In terms of what I saw and my and the feast for my eyes, and and I saw that the designers Izzy Miyake and Rei Kawakubo and and the designers who are now, you know, extremely well-known, they were just starting to show their their collections in Paris at that time. And they, the whole world was talking, the buzz was about Japanese fashion. And I saw it firsthand there and I realized mm-hmm. that what they were designing was kind of like it, origin, the origin of their designs was, was a kimono. They were geometric shapes in incredibly beautiful fabrics But with a distorted, almost modern, it was fabulous. And I just went, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. It's like a light bulb went on. And I went, I don't want to just make something that other people are making. I want to create something that is, as Canadian... As the kimono is Japanese, I came home, and while I was there, I was having vivid dreams and images and everything. I came home, I canceled my women's wear daily subscriptions, I stopped going to New York and to the fabric shows. I I started going more inward, and at that point, I started having visions. And it I was it was this. you know what, I love Marilyn, this. my creative process had been on hold. I I didn't even know what my creative mm-hmm. process was. Until I made that sh- trip to Japan, and I started, I started playing with my own geometric shapes, and I started looking. Okay, what's Canadian? What is Canadian? What's Canadian? And uh, that's when my whole idea of of La Parca came about, because if there's a an iconic Canadian garment, it would be the Inuit parka, and at the same time. I was thinking about my heritage in uh, growing up in Northwestern Ontario, and I was thinking about how we would go curling every Friday afternoon and get off school, and how curling and hockey and outdoor rinks, and um, and I started making curling sweaters as part of my collection and plaid shirts, and and drawing upon my experience in Red Lake, and it just. It gave birth to a whole creative process that that just started bubbling up inside me, and I had all these ideas, and I I wasn't paying any attention to what was happening in the rest of the fashion world, and that was the beginning of creating my own identity as a designer, and people started to take notice, and that's really when you know that's really when my sales um, started yeah. really climbing and uh, culminating with the with the creation of of the Leparka, which, which became a, you know, a selling phenomenon.
0: Oh, it's, it, it should be in a Canadiana dictionary, Leparka. I mean, it was a global phenomenon.
1: And at the same time, I re, I understood that my dad, who, my dad's Swedish, but more importantly, my dad's family were from North of the Arctic Circle and were Sami, Sami heritage and Sami are the indigenous people of Northern Sweden, Norway, and Finland. And they mm-hmm. dressed in a, in a system of layering also using the hide from the reindeer. And uh, They were reindeer herders. Yeah. And so that's where I came up with the name Lap because they were Laplanders. And it was a province called Lapland. So that's where Lap Parka came from and um and it was just a magical a magical, magical experience from then on and and became so we went from you know being a struggling company with a cash flow problem in 1984 to being a um by by 1990 we were doing like three- 13 million dollars in sales of the uh, La Parca and the family of products that went with it. I may have the years wrong there, exactly. But it was very, very, very exciting. Were you collaborating at this
0: point with the First Nations people around La Parca? Because I have made a, I've made a note <sighs> about, and I'm going to try and get his name.
1: I know he's not with us anymore. Abe Kakapetum. Yes, Abius Kakapetum was his full name. And he and I went to school together in Koshner. He had he had attended a residential school and wow, I and didn't when know he that. joined us in Koshner, he was about 12 or 13 years old and he entered into grade 3 so after being in residential school from the age of 5 so he was now 12 so for 7 years when he was evaluated he was only at a grade 3 level and that so yeah. that it shows you what the quality of the education was like in the residential schools because he was a very smart guy but um anyway so he was the big kid in grade 3 and so and but he was an amazing artist like he used to draw all the time and we used to say okay you know draw a cowboy and he'd he would say what's a cowboy <laughs> and somebody said well you know like cowboys and indians and uh, I'll never forget the day when Abius, he, d- he didn't know what a cowboy was. And um, I have so many memories of, of that time. But Abius was a wonderful artist. So when I came up with the leparca and it birthed around the time when I had my first child. And Marilyn, I can only say that um, I had a cathartic experience one day when I was nursing my daughter, Mm -hmm. was a baby and I was watching TV uh, in the the family room and Peter Zosky had a television program at that Mm -hmm. time and he was interviewing an, an indigenous man named John Kimbell and I was watching and when I left Red Lake, I buried all the memories of the shame, the guilt, the racism, the injustices, I left them there. But what I didn't realize was that I actually brought them with me and they were buried deep in my subconscious. So when he came on with John Kimbell, John Kimbell started talking about his um, Canadian Native Art Foundation, which he had started. John Kimbell was a, uh, a conductor and he had been conducting orchestras. And he was a very talented Mohawk man. And when he said that... He was started this organization to support indigenous people in the visual and the performing arts. I remembered Abe Kakapedm and how wonderful an artist he was. I remembered the indigenous people who were natural musicians and could play the fiddle and the guitar mm-hmm. and, and sing. And I, it was like a reckoning. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, I, a sudden, yeah. I had an epiphany. And all my guilt and shame came flooding back. And I looked down mm. at my baby and I thought, I cannot let the racism that I grew up with pass on to this next generation. I need to resolve this. I need to I need to fix this. I need to do something about the guilt and shame and the injustices that I grew up witnessing and not having the courage to, to do anything about. So I contacted John Kimbell and I said, I want to contribute to your organization. I think you're doing a wonderful thing and I want to do more. And we met and I said, look, I'd like to stage an a, a, a art competition and, and then select pieces to embellish my Parkas. And that's where he put me in touch with every band office in Canada and the Northwest Territories wow. and the whole country basically. Um, and I, invited Native artists to submit their work. And I started getting all this wonderful work. And I I told a friend in Red Lake, I said, where is Abe Kakapetum these days? And he said, he's in Sulukat. I said, well, could you please make sure he... Get, there was no email back then. Uh, make sure he gets this letter. And um, so I invited him to submit something, and he did. And he was one of the winners. And that was like my relationship with him in Koshner, which was a segregated community, I... I renewed that connection with him, and it was like the closing of a circle. That was a really, really important part of my healing. But um,
0: and he designed he designed the most beautiful La Parca. I'm sure there was, but this one was Native yeah. Sun. That was yeah. the was it the white parka yeah. with a black yeah. um, motif across the back Yeah, of it. well,
1: all of his drawings had a native sun in the corner. And I said, can we just take that sun and blow it up? And then I, I we, we worked out how it could sit on the shoulders. So we, it was it was yeah. a true collaboration because when Very he first powerful. saw it, he went, wow, he didn't expect
0: right.
1: his drawing to translate that way. So I had experience like, like that with Abe, with other artists as well. Um, a wonderful artist named Natalie Rostad, contributed work, um, Hugh McKenzie, oh boy, Wade Sun. I, I I had an opportunity over the next several years to meet and collaborate with lots of Native artists and pay them for their the use of their work and then hear the stories of the meaning of the work and and, and in that way, creating an awareness of this rich and beautiful culture uh, mm-hmm. as it, it was being expressed by... Uh, these Native artists. And uh, and also, I should mention that Kochener was where Norval Morisot lived and began his painting career. How many so, people, again, lived in Kochener? 250. <sighs> 248. And me and Norval Morisot. And Norval Morisot <laughs> became the father of woodland art and became world famous for his art that now hangs in the National Gallery in Ottawa and in the McMichael Museum here in, in uh, Kleinberg, and uh, he, he used to walk around with his paintings under his arm, and in a town of 250 people, that's a very small market.
0: Well, what a beautiful story.
1: And I, I'm blessed to say that I have one of his paintings
0: here oh. in my home. And on the 20th anniversary of La Parca, there was a warrior woman, La Parca, produced, that there's a picture of you wearing, which mm-hmm. is godlike. It is just stunning and beautiful. Who designed that particular beautiful piece? I mean, you designed it, but who was the artist that you collaborated with?
1: Yes, it was a true collaboration. There's an artist from Vancouver Island named Juno. And Juno is a a brilliant artist who specializes in fiber art. Hmm. And I I approached her and I also had a, a dear friend in Red Lake named Karen Dannenman, who, is, who speaks Ojekree and is very knowledgeable about the culture. She's a, an Indigenous uh, woman, trapper, um, leader, visionary. And so the three of us, Juno on Vancouver Island, Karen in Red Lake, and me down here, we collaborated um, and I described to Karen and to Juno this woman who I had seen in my vision back when I came up with the vision for the laparca, who was walking with purpose and intention. She was walking from my right to my left on a frosty, treeless horizon. And the color of the sky changed with the color of her garment, which was a parka, which she was, which I could see because she was in silhouette. So I didn't see her face but I could see the silhouette of the of the parka and, um, and, and it just the way she was walking was strong and purposeful. And so Juno took that idea and she created this art. Um, she found some old photographs of Indigenous women and she found the face of one woman in particular in an old photograph and she blew it up and she enhanced it. And it's as though the woman in my vision turned around so that we could see her face. Mm. And she represented the past. And then Juno did a stylized version of, of that woman that represented the future. It was magical the way the whole thing came together. I really have to credit Juno for her ability to interpret my vision and Karen for naming it. I said, what do you call a woman like that? in your language, she said, well, I'm going to have to check with with the elders. And so she came back and she said, that woman is called an Okechitakwe. Okechitakwe means warrior woman peacekeeper. Beautiful. She said, that's the closest name I can come to with what you've described to me. She is a warrior woman and she will fight and be very strong in order to keep the peace. Beautiful. So she is she is respected. And so ah, so that became the name of the piece. And ah
0: beautiful. It is it is absolutely indescribably stunning.
1: So in when the photographs we, when that we, I've seen. Thank you. So the idea is imagine this face being blown up from maybe it was a half an inch, mm-hmm. maybe less, a quarter of an inch in this photograph, this old photograph, and Juno blew it up and blew it up, and the face of this woman is about. I would say, 16 inches high and printed on silk and it became quite pixelated. So we applied it onto the wool and you don't know that it's a face until you're seeing Mm -hmm. it from a distance and then it begins to form this face that you can then see from a distance. Um, And yeah, that was was magical, the way that all came together.
0: Incredible. (laughs) So... I've got the year 2000 you moved to new premises you were constantly moving constantly growing and for the first time you'd started to experience a decline in sales and then it was the year 2008
1: that the bank called in your loan right and and really from really from the late 90s we moved from a 40,000 square foot premises to a 60,000 square foot state of the art, I said, this is it. I'm not going to move again. Mm -hmm. This is where I'm going to, this is it. This is where I'm going to finish my career. And, um, and I'm, they're going to carry me out of here in a box and (laughs) I'm going to just design until forever. So, you know, it was, it was a wonderful space and the ink wasn't dry on the, on the agreement to occupy that space when we started experiencing a decline in sales with this factory that had this larger capacity and was preparing us for the sales increase that we had for, for 25 years, we had had nothing but sales increases. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, um, this was the first time that we had experienced a sales leveling off and then an, an actual decline. So yikes. Um, In 2008, when the bank called my loan, we had come through about six years of of really having a tough time. And Mm -hmm. by 2006, after the sales decline around the 2000, uh, by 2006, we had turned the company around and we were profitable again. And we had introduced lean manufacturing, which was just one of the most exciting things that I'd ever experienced because it was a, a new way of looking at manufacturing. And so um, the possibilities for the future were exciting. It was just when um, online uh, mm-hmm. shopping was just starting. And I, I saw that as being the way of the future. And I decided that I was going to turn around the company. Back then we were wholesaling and we were selling to retailers, so independent retailers on Main Street and you know Saskatoon or we had customers all across Canada and the u s that were boutiques boutiques right and they were having a tough time around then and and I decided, you know what this shopping online is really really the the thing that we need to be focusing on and before we got there um, the bank in two thousand and eight which was which was when the whole beginning of the world financial crisis started, but in January of 2008, the average person wasn't aware of it.
0: No, but people look back on it now and say, yeah, that was when everything started to fall apart economically. Right.
1: So So I think my bank just uh, had a, a memo from somewhere saying any of your accounts that are off margin, which we were at that time of the year because mm-hmm. we, we were a s- seasonal business, uh, you got to call their loans because the banks were, you know, were involved in all kinds of subprime mortgage stuff. Anyway, we got the call from somebody who had never been to our place, who had never, never met us. And, um, and I said, that's it. I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't invest this much emotionally, financially, and everything that it takes to grow a business for that number of years. I, I I can't do it any anymore when somebody in an office tower on Bay Street can just pull the plug. They gave us thir- 30 days to pay back $2 million. And um, my husband, who was working with me at the time, and I looked at one another and, and we said, let's pay those. And I'm going to say a word that's an expletive.
0: <laughs> yes. Let's pay
1: those blankety blank back. Every goddamn penny. Yeah. In the next 30 days, we did everything to sell, yeah. liquidate, and pay back the bank. And we did it.
0: And that was the story, Linda, to loop you back to when we first started the conversation. In March of 2013, you told the story when we were at the Holtz Cafe for International Women's Day when we first met. You were talking to him about how that's it. The bank's called the loan. And you were in the car driving and you were having this conversation with your with your husband and I remember thinking, you know, well before empathy, authentic, these words were even big buzzy words in the world, you were a hundred percent transparent with an audience full of women who were so inspired by this story of essentially what the world would consider failure thanks to them pulling the plug on you.
1: Yeah, and and that's where the material for my, because I also have a career as a public speaker. I know, you're and, with the National Speakers Bureau. And so what, what happened was my speeches, uh, I started developing this, this speech called the F word. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, handling success, it's stressful. I got to say, handling success is stressful uh, when you've got a company that's growing all the time. But handling failure is a really important skill to have. Absolutely. And I started realizing that because my parents had given me so much responsibility and didn't question me, I had experienced a lot of failures. And I realized that every single one of them came bearing gifts. Yes. Uh, I believe that everything in life is a gift. Every, every single thing, every failure, every success, every jerk every wonderful inspiring person they've all they're all brought to us to deliver gifts to us in our lives and and so this failure of my company to survive the the beginning of the economic crisis came with a gift and the gift was that if the bank had not called our loan in january and had instead had called it in September of two thousand and eight would have been a very very different story because by then lots of companies were going out of business and having difficulty. By then, because they called it so early and we dealt with it so early, mm-hmm. the the value that we were able to pull out of it in order to pay back the bank and to pay something to our creditors uh, was greater. And and when I look back on that, I just went, wow. We were really lucky that it happened when it happened because it would have been a worse situation if it happened later. Anyway, you can always look back on things. And I believe you can always look back on things and dig for the gifts that are buried in every experience. And sometimes the greatest gifts actually have to come. You can only see them through your own tears. And there was a lot of tears. (laughs) And when you mentioned my husband, my husband, um, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a risk taker. Yes. And, and when, when the bank called our loan and they wanted us to pay back this money, I was determined that I was going to do whatever it took to keep the company going and, you know, try and borrow some money from some guy on a street corner or wherever. And just, I was like, I was focused on trying to keep going. Yes. And my husband said to me, and I think this is what you remember from the speech at Holtz. Uh, he said, look, you do whatever you want. But I don't want any part of it Mm -hmm. because I have a wife and a family to take care of. And I went, oh, my God. I'm going to risk everything, willing to risk everything again, not knowing how I was going to do it. He wanted to get out and preserve as much as he could so that he could take care of me and our family. And that's when it was like, whoa, it just hit me. What am I doing it's there's a time for everything, and it's time to stop. Yes. And um, I have visions, and I look for signs and signals. And uh, in in the whole business about the F word, I um, I tell my audiences, you know, when you're in that situation where you're experiencing failure, watch for signs, pay attention to your dreams and visions, and at that time, I remember being really, really stressed and anxious and going for a walk outside in my La Parca And I was afraid to walk down the street in my neighborhood, which is a really quiet neighborhood. There's no traffic or anything. So I sat in a snowbank and I leaned back in the snowbank in my red La Parca and the snowflakes were falling down. And I said, God, send me a sign, send me a sign. And I didn't get anything. So I sat up, and I looked at the end of my street, and there was a stop sign. Now, this is a stop sign that I've, I've slowed down at hundreds <laughs> of times. <laughs> a stop as I like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> but on this particular night, this stop sign was twice its size. So I went into the house, and I said, you noticed how they, they, they replaced the stop sign over there? They made a bigger sign. must have been because people weren't stopping. And Joel said, no, I never noticed that. I went, oh, interesting. I went back out the next day and they had not it was still the same sign, but that mm-hmm. night it was twice the size mm-hmm. and that was my that was my sign. Mm-hmm. I wanted a sign. I said send me a sign
0: literally and figuratively I'll give you a
1: sign yeah <laughs> so what do you do with a stop sign? You don't stop and park your car and turn it off. you stop. you'll look both ways yeah and you think am I gonna go forward, right or left? and you proceed with caution. Yes. And that became a metaphor for what I what we ended up doing which was stopping, paying back the bank and then thinking about okay, what's next? And that's a whole story, but I you know, when I look back on my career, I think it's important to make at least one mistake every day because some of the greatest opportunities came from screw-ups yes. and, mis- and things that didn't go the way I planned. And you know what I mean? So I think that in the curriculum of our schools and our education system, I think there should be more emphasis placed on learning from uh, the students who have 53% averages, um, how they handle failure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and- You know what I mean? Like I'm teaching kids kids about failure because if somebody does really well in school and then they get out into the world and they experience failure and they don't know how to handle it. And you're
0: talking to one of those right now. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Because, and this is not about me, it's about you, but I was pretty good at being able to visualize textbooks and have a photographic memory. So I could Ah. spew out a textbook and get 90s in everything at school. And I did. And then I got out into the real world to find out that if you don't actually understand what you're spewing, then it's not very, you know, useful to you on any level. And when you start to experience failure, you have no concept about how to deal with it except, you know, getting more and more self-hatred going on because I'm not perfect. And where did this perfectionist thing even come from? right. And you don't know how to deal with it. And it's 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 terrifying. And there's generations of kids that are behind us now that, you know, the parents have protected them from failure. They have, everybody gets a participation ribbon type of approach. And I t- I'm terrified about those kids because when they grow up to be adults and when those parents aren't there for them anymore, what happens even on a small little level of something that doesn't work out the way they thought it was supposed to, it's it's terrifying. It's devastating. They become absolutely frozen. They don't know how to deal
1: with it. Okay, so this is so important. Okay? Students like you, who did well in school, often wanted, when they grew up, they wanted to be teachers mm-hmm. because they were good at it. Mm-hmm. Right? People like me never wanted to be teachers mm-hmm. <laughs> because we weren't good at school, and The teachers are the same people that are creating curriculum Mm -hmm. and then are teachers. And it's like generational also because, you know, the children of teachers often want to be teachers. Curriculum and teaching methods should actually be designed by students like I was. Yes. Because if it works for me, it'll work for everybody.
0: Yes. And there's so much more to learning than what the hell is the percent that you just got. And because... Here was me walking into, well, you graduated high school with 53%. So there's your judgment banner that's hanging over your head. Right, yeah. And no, that's not
1: it whatsoever. And you know, this this whole imposter syndrome, when you don't do well in the school, like when I won my first award from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, um, and they had this big gala banquet and everything was like a thousand people there and the governor, the lieutenant governor, mm-hmm. it was a big deal and i was so nervous because i thought when they called my name i thought what if they find out about my marks in school oh bless <laughs> your heart that is fabulous and i thought they might say oh it's linda oh wait a minute um hang on there's been a problem we've <laughs> looked up your take, transcript take linda the award and, uh, back. <laughs> we're not we're not going to give it to yeah, you yeah i don't deserve this because i didn't do well in school and it was it was actually fairly, several years into my success as a business person and winning several awards that I realized, you know what? I'm not stupid. I, I'm really, I my confidence built slowly after that, but I really, um, it really scars you when you don't do well in school. And so that's why I had a, a big issue with the education system and why I, I understood that uh, for Indigenous students who have come from a, a life experience of experiential learning, you know, yes. learning how to skin a mm-hmm. uh, skin an animal on the trap line, uh, learning how to you know find your way in the bush, and, and and experiential learning is really a part of the indigenous culture, and it's not sitting at a desk and reading no. a book. No, and I understood that that's one of the reasons why um, many indigenous students, no matter how intelligent they are, do not do well in our education system, and so I began to. Um, also use my influence to lobby for the inclusion of, um, native studies in the curriculum up in Red Lake and worked with Karen Daneman, who's the woman who worked with me on the Okachetukwe yes. project, began to bring awareness of First Nations culture of the area into the classrooms, uh, up in Red Lake. And, um, I'm pleased to say that the Kishik Fund, which is the fund that we established in order to finance this, was completely supported by my speaking engagements. So whenever I had a speech, and the honorarium would go to the Kishik Fund, and then we would use that money to bring a Native artist or a, an elder or a language speaker into the classroom. And as a result, today, there is a whole Native Studies program in the schools in the Red Lake area. That's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm really, really proud of that. Really proud I, of that. You should be. Wow. Well, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging or anything. You're but not. This is important. This is important stuff. The, the, the education system, the curriculum has to be designed for the children who don't do well in the old system. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I wanted to just then talk about, okay, so... You've clawed it all back now. You've paid back the bank. You've sold your house in Toronto. You've moved up to Caledon, if I'm correct with that. You've gone from Red Lake to what I understand is Green Lake. And you've you've saved your soul through reconnecting with the indigenous peoples, reconnecting with the ability to be able to go swimming in a lake every day. Mm -hmm. And reconnecting with your roots is what really saved you. Spiritually, mentally, financially.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Am I right with my general abbreviation of whatever yeah. amount of years I just collapsed yeah, that's a, into five yeah, minutes? That's a
1: really that's a really, really good summary. Uh, Marilyn, thank you for that. Um there was a there's a lot of stories that happened, a lot of things that happened during that time, but I can only say that we we had to sell our house to put that money towards paying off our debts and, and honoring our obligations to our employees who were owed vacation yeah. pay. And we, we tried to, to really honor, yeah uh, because the thing, the thing is we had a community of people that in that company that worked together every day. And, and then um, we've actually had, we're approached by a company that um, wanted to buy our, our company um, by my name and uh, purchase our, inventory assets, and most importantly, hire back our staff, which oh, which good. was something I felt very yes. was really important to me. Now, they also offered me the job of chief creative officer to stay on with the company. And I mm-hmm. thought, great, I don't have to have my name above the door and signing the checks and I can just be an employee. Yes, um, And that lasted for 15 months.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: worked for the new owner's and i found it to be an absolutely soul crushing experience um the corporate culture that they believed in was completely different than the corporate culture that we had established um that's so, so it was sad it was um it was difficult for me because it was just so different from what Mm-hmm. I had I had built, and so after 15 months, Joel and I again looked at one another because we were both employed by the company, and but he was not employed after the sale went through. Uh, here we are. If I leave, we have no income, and we decided that we would leave. I would quit my job, and we would move to our cabin, which we had maintained ownership of throughout the whole thing. And we spent four winters in that cabin. It's an uninsulated summer cabin with a wood stove. <laughs> and we spent four winters and every fall, I would put the the plastic up on the windows and shrink it with a hairdryer. Yes. And we would um, get a whole bunch of wood cut for the fire for the stove. And I spent, Three years of those four years kind of grieving um mm-hmm. I did a whole bunch of things i I was uh teaching at George Brown college they invited me to to be a part time professor at george brown and Marilyn mcneil uh was the chair then and she was lovely and invited me to spend some time there i um i began i i got a construction trailer and put it in the driveway of the cabin and um I bought machine. I took the machine that I had when I started the company in 1974. Uh, I took that with me and I set up a cutting table, which is this cutting table that I'm sitting at right now, actually. Fabulous. Put it in the the construction trailer. And I started again. And um, I started making things and selling them um, online and at the one-of-a-kind show and at the signature. So I began taking these things on the road and selling them. And I realized I just have to make things. I'm just, I have a compulsion to make things. And we left behind that state-of-the-art. Yes. Magnificent company and walked away with very, very little and have been able to create a life for ourselves here. Yes. Um and I've never been happier because uh, we tore down the cabin after four years and built an energy efficient home. And in 2016, I got a call from my eldest daughter, Moshe, who was the baby I was feeding when yes. I had the, you you had know, the, the epiphany. Yes. Um, she called and, and she said, and she's a, a fashion writer for Women's Wear Daily which is the one I canceled. <laughs> I was going to say, the, just the she's, circles she's upon circles. On, exactly. She's traveling for Women's Wear Daily to Milan and Paris and New yep. York Fashion Week and London Fashion Week and, um, you know, living in New York City. And she calls and says, Mom, there's a white space in the market. And I, every time I go to one of these fashion weeks, I see it over and over again. And I said, what's a white space? She said, well, it's something's missing. There's a and I said, what is that? And she said, warm, glamorous coats. that keep you warm and dry, but don't look like you're on an Arctic expedition. Exactly. And she said, the coats that are beautiful looking, she said, they're not warm. Mm-hmm. And the coats that are warm are not beautiful and glamorous looking. And she said, there's just an opportunity right there if we can fill that gap. So what did you do? And she said, and you're going to be the designer, Mom, because oh, there's, there's, there's nobody that can design outerwear like you. And I said, well, let me think about it. I don't, I don't know, Moshe. Yeah. I, I just like, uh, do I want to? And I started telling her all the ways that I, the only conditions I would do it under. I said, I don't want to wholesale. I don't want to sell to retailers because I really believe that retail is dying mm-hmm. and it's, And its last throws, which I I was right about, I said, I will only do it if it's an online company, which is what I was trying to turn my company around to become back in the early 2000s. And I I don't want to do too big of a collection and I want to be happy. I want it to be fun. Mm -hmm. So she got my other daughter on the line, Sophie, who had graduated from Emily Carr in Vancouver with a degree (sighs) in... In fine arts with a major in visual communication. And she wow. said, yeah, and Sophie's going to build the website and she's going to be in charge of all the visuals. She said, Mom, I know so many people. I'm, I'm traveling. I won't quit my regular job. I know so many people. I'll, I'll be in charge of getting the word out there that we're doing this. So fast forward, it's 2021. And the company, which we named Thermacota, that was Moshe's idea, cota is a Sami dwelling, which is the name for a... It's like a teepee type of thing, but it's for the Sami, the Lapland people, my father's heritage. Yes. Their dwelling, traditional dwelling, is called a kota. And so Moshe came up with the name Thermakota. And we now have this company that we operate remotely, and we've been operating remotely since 2017. Moshe has lived in New York, Miami, California. Now she's back in Miami. My other daughter, Sophie, traveled for a year and, and has been living in Dublin for the past three years. And I'm here in Caledon and we've been running this company together. And it is now a global brand. And you're happy. And we're I'm happy. so happy. Um and I'm still making things, you know. And, and you're and, doing um, what you love. I'm doing what I love. And uh yeah, we're we're starting to really get traction. Uh, 2020 was our best year ever, and people are shopping online.
0: Yeah, Congratulations. So thermacoda.
1: com, check it out. Absolutely, and I wanted to ask, because I know I've been
0: taking up so much of your time today, <laughs> how, how can we support you? How do we reach out? How do we buy products from you? How do we support
1: your Indigenous efforts? Well, the income that Thermacoda generates for me is actually what enables me to continue with the Sewing Circle Project, which is something that... um, The Sewing Circle Project, it actually, when I look back, it it comes from those days in my mother's fabric store when the Indigenous women would come and they would need fabric to line their moccasins and mukluks and they needed needles and they needed thread and they needed beads and they needed things to do their beautiful work. And if they had inferior quality thread then all that wonderful beating just didn't last. And so the whole thing is that if they're given, if they, if they have access to good materials and good machines and, and, and the right kind of quality of products, then they can then apply their creativity and their wonderful culture and tradition to making beautiful things. And so I, when I set up my construction trailer in my driveway when we first came up here, I had to buy a thread. I had to buy mm. a machine because I left I left the company with nothing. I, I basically walked out with my scissors yeah. and left everything behind when I quit my job yeah. with the new owners. So I had to buy everything, and I kept track of how much everything cost for me to start up this little 10-foot-wide by 32-foot-long little studio and I thought, and it came to eight thousand dollars. And I thought, hmm, darn, for eight thousand dollars, I could set up like a little business, and that could be set up anywhere. Yep. And I came up with this whole idea of taking that idea and establishing it and making it happen in a remote First Nations community that did not have access to fabric, thread, scissors, beads, pattern paper—you know, just the basics. And I came up with this idea of um, being the conduit or the facilitator for First Nations communities that are remote to be clothing independent, to be clothing and soft goods independent, being able to make their own things. A typical person that lives in a fly-in community will fly out to Thunder Bay or somewhere like that and go to Walmart and buy their things there and then fly back to their community and it costs them you know hundreds of dollars like $500 or $600 to fly from a northern community into Thunder Bay and they're limited how much they can take back with them it's it's just a it's just a rotten situation of this access so i decided that i could help by sourcing materials if they needed something sourcing whatever they needed and supplying it and so since i started that in 2009 i have sent <laughs> I've sent yarn and knitting needles to Yabamatung, which is 400 kilometers north of Thunder Bay. I've sent fabric up to a place called Deer Lake in uh, mm-hmm. northwestern Ontario. Uh, I've, I've sent fabric to Piiwanik Moose Factory. Uh, there's a community in Alberta called Maskwacis where I, I set up a mini sewing circle there for a program they were running. Uh, so the Sewing Circle is basically using my knowledge, my contacts, my network of suppliers to supply Indigenous communities with what they need to do what they need to do to be independent and not have to go and buy cheap stuff at Walmart that's made offshore. And that's been, that's been really, really rewarding. Also very, very challenging process. Um, I wish that more people knew about my services with the sewing circle. And and the best way to support me with the sewing circle is to get the the word out there but also to buy my product at Thermakota yes. because yes. that's actually what helps me um my my designing with Thermakota is is a passion and it's a job and it's a company a family company with my daughters. But the sewing circle and my work with indigenous people is more like a calling. And I really believe the seed was planted for that calling downstairs in my mother's fabric store all those years ago. Well, Linda, I
0: don't know how to say thank you and I feel like we could could be talking forever and forever because there's so many more stories. So, first of all, please come back another time and we'll do some more deep diving and maybe talk about the proper way to fillet a pickerel. (laughs) But I definitely want to have you back and thank you so much for everything you've done (laughs) and for sharing your story with all of us who are listening and And please come back and tell us more. And absolutely, I'm a customer and everybody I speak to will be too, because your work is beautiful and your products are beautiful and they do so much good in the world.
1: Thank you, Marilyn. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for
0: listening to Breaking Brave. After we wrapped up our conversation, Linda did have a specific ask. The sewing circle that she created, as well as all the collaborations with Indigenous people are all part of her personal Truth and Reconciliation journey. When I asked her what we could do to support her work, what she would like us to do is to learn about the 93 Calls to Action in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report by Justice Murray Sinclair. She further asks that we reach out in our own communities and get involved, learn about the past, the present, and the future of the Indigenous people, get involved in the community, become active in an initiative, and truly become their ally. Thanks again to Linda, and thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time.